Welcome to the Story Church Podcast. The Story Church Podcast is the official podcast of the Story Church Project, which focuses on redesigning Adventism from tradition to mission. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is Pastor Marquis here, and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church podcast. In the last six weeks, we've been doing a series on, uh, it was titled Help My Local Avenue Church Sucks, and we looked at some of the really basic steps that I've discovered over the years as a pastor um, with a really big sort of interest or, or heart for reaching the culture and having churches that are missional and designed for mission. Uh, and so we just looked at some of the basic um, things that I've explored, that I've experienced, that I've applied in my local church context that have been a real big blessing for me. And uh, I hope that that series was a huge blessing for you because the series is now over. So I'm going to be moving on to other things. Uh, however, I did want to say that if you really enjoyed the series, and you want to take those concepts and you want to share them or you want to explore them with your local church, I understand that having everyone listen to a podcast series isn't exactly the most practical way of doing things. So I've taken all the content in that series, uh, plus a few extra things that were not mentioned in the series, and I have compiled them into one ebook. And the title of that ebook is Heartbeat, How to Redesign Your Local Adventist Church. And uh, if you head over to the storychurchproject.com slash store one, there has to be a one after store, like not spelled, just the number. Or if you just go to the storychurchproject.com and look on the toolbar, uh, you will find the store there. And uh, check it out. And uh, you can you can get this ebook. It's five bucks, so super cheap. It's got lots of graphics. It's very easy to use, and you can share it with your friends. And it's also available on Amazon. You can download it as an ebook uh, in your Kindle or Kindle app, whatever it is you use. Uh, you can get it there for the same exact price. So check that out, guys. It's a really good way to share the content with your local church, with your leaders, um, with your pastor, etc., cetera, um, without having to get them to listen to six podcast episodes. It's 50 pages, so it's a very small ebook. Um, and like I said, I, I've made it with lots of graphics and colors and stuff, so it's it's quite engaging and, and fun to navigate. So check that out at thestorychurchproject.com. Um, and you know, once you get a look at it, let me know what you thought about it, because I love hearing feedback. I love getting feedback. And, and knowing if the resources and ideas that are being shared are actually meaningful for you guys. Because I don't know, I find them meaningful for me. <laughs> and I just hope that it's meaningful for you guys. But uh, no, I don't have to hope too much because I do get lots of messages and I really appreciate those guys. Um, with that said, I want to put out a huge shout out as I've been doing in my podcast lately to, um, and, I, and I will continue to do, to all of my patrons. Because um, look, I'm going to keep doing shout outs in every episode because I just love it. I just love you guys. And I, I love the way that the fact that you guys are um, putting yourselves out there and supporting the project because it makes a huge difference, an absolute huge difference. The way that social media algorithms work nowadays and, and um uh, when it comes to projects like these, it's, it's very difficult to get out there. It's very difficult to get noticed. So having Patreons that are backing up the project that can enable it to not just create new resources, but to actually promote those resources is absolutely huge. So thank you guys. And if you are interested in becoming a patron because you love the Story Church Project and you want every Adventist on the face of the earth to be able to know that it exists as well, 
head over to patreon.com slash the story church project and you'll get all the instructions there in less than one minute you can read it all uh, and you can make a decision on whether um, you'd like to support the project and look this is a this is actually quite serious because like I said I, I have a vision to impact local Adventist churches the world around but particularly and especially in the Western context, because that's where I operate and that's where I feel like there's a lot of things that we as local churches need to do differently in order to um, be missional and be effective. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, guys, hard, you know, I'd probably, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate here and I don't want to like self-deprecate either, but I would venture to say that hardly anyone knows the Story Church Project exists. Um, if you're listening to this and you listen every week, you're probably like, that's not true. Um, but the truth is, look, uh, when I look at the at the analytics and the numbers, um, it's really good to see a consistent uh, presence and a consistent uh, listener base. But um, it's it can be a lot bigger, guys. And and it's not about you know just getting big. It's it's about the the ideas getting out there, the challenges, the inspiration getting out there. So hey, look, if you want to help out with that, um, Patreon is one way to do it. And another way to do it is to just share it, right? Share it on your Instagram, share it on your Facebook page, email it to your friends, your church members, your pastors, whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, it's another great way of sharing it that is totally free. All right, so like I said, we are going to be moving on to some new things. I got some new interviews coming up in the future that are going to be lots of fun, so I want you to keep your eyes open for that as well. I'll be announcing and promoting those uh, in the next few weeks, but today, what I actually want to do is I want to highlight an article that I published not on the Story Church Project, but I actually published it on the Compass Magazine. Now, I want to take a moment here before I go into the article to promote the Compass Magazine. If you have not heard of the Compass Magazine, it's really, really cool. Like, I love the Compass Magazine. And uh, it's, a, it's a great online resource for people who are not just into Adventism, but like you like the deep stuff, right? So there's some like really deep content at the Compass Magazine. And actually, I think they only publish deep content. So uh, if you're into theology and you enjoy theology and you enjoy theological depth and philosophical depth of thought and exploration, um, yeah, you definitely want to check out the Compass Magazine. I'm pretty sure, because uh, I've written for them quite a few times, so from memory, like their articles have to be a minimum of like 2,300 words, I think. <laughs> so you are not going to land there and find like two paragraph little articles. Like this is really good stuff. So again, if that is a passion of yours, if you love theology, philosophy, you know, methodology, all of that sort of stuff, don't miss out on the Compass Magazine. So I published this article with the Compass Magazine um, around the same time that I released the ebook, uh, How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns. And so this article that I published with the Compass Magazine is actually an appendix in How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns. And this is the appendix that deals with metamodernism. And so what I want to do in today's episode is I actually want to explore that because even though it's in the ebook, How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns, which by the way, if you don't have it yet, what are you waiting for? It's free, right? All you have to do is subscribe to the newsletter and 
you can have this ebook for free. And please don't be one of those guys. No, I don't want to give my email out. Like, what do you think I'm going to do with it? Right? Come on. Uh, just subscribe, get the ebook for free. And if you absolutely just cannot stand giving your email out, then unsubscribe. Like, I'll, my feelings will only be hurt for a little while. So I'm just kidding. I'll be fine. Um, but definitely check it out. It's, it's a great book. And lots of people have given me some amazing feedback on how to study the Bible with postmoderns. So again, if you go to storychurchproject.com and you look it up, you, you'll find a lot of the um, testimonials there of people who have read it and have really enjoyed it. And I really want to invite you to read it and, um, and, and enjoy it as well. Now, this appendix in How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns, which is also an article on the Compass magazine, is titled Metamodernism. Meta I'm sorry, a lot of, a lot of um, jumbles there. Metamodernism and its impending challenge. And what I do in this appendix is I actually explore what is metamodernism? And that's what I want to do in today's episode. I basically want to go over this appendix. What is metamodernism? Have you ever heard of metamodernism? And if not, then why should you even care about it? So I want to start out by saying this. One of the things that we hear the most about nowadays when it comes to missiology and outreach is postmodernism. And, and that's cool. Like I talk about it a lot as well. But here is the reality. If you are talking about postmodernism and investigating postmodernism, you're actually really behind the times. Uh, among the trendsetters in society, and, and, and some of what I say in this episode is actually going to be word for word, you know, from the appendix from the book. Um, among the, the trendsetters in society, um, postmodernism is already dead. And, and that's the reality. Like postmodernism, a lot of people don't realize, like it goes back to like post-World War One. I. I mean, it's like, it's old stuff. And, uh, and it became really, really, it was probably like at its maximal height of influence among the trendsetters in society in, in about the 50s, the 1950s. And it still has a huge influence, but it has definitely waned. It's not the key way that people are perceiving reality um, anymore. And so if you hear me talking about postmodernism. I only really use the word postmodernism because it's the only word people are familiar with in this sort of missiological space. And I have to use the word so that people get a gist of what I'm, what I'm talking about and what I'm focusing on. But when I actually use the word postmodern, I'm not just talking about postmodernism. I'm talking about metamodernism. And, and there's a, some different um, variables of that as well that are floating around. And, and so like the, the reality is we, we kind of, we live in like a post everything society, right? And so it's not just postmodern. It's like post-church, post-Christian, post-secular, post-everything. And, um, and so metamodernism really is the emerging philosophical worldview that has captured the attention of academics and, and trendsetters in society. So I want to explore a little bit about metamodernism in today's episode, just to give you a bit of a taste. And again, if you, if you want to read this, this is in the appendix of the ebook, How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns. Um, and, and of course, that book, again, Postmoderns, I'm looking at that in a broader definition. So um, it, it deals with how to study the Bible with really modern secular people today who are very influenced by metamodernism. And, um, and, and also you can check out the article on the Compass Magazine. Uh, just look up metamodernism. I think it, it might be the only article on there about metamodernism. Um, lastly, before, before I dive in a little bit more, I also want to thank um, uh, Shelly Poole, 
for being the person who kind of introduced me to this because uh, Shelly's an artist and, and so she is involved in, in art circles quite deeply, um, as well as Daniel Blyden, who uh, I, I believe I've interviewed both of them for this podcast. Um, and so you can go back and, and look at some episodes where I've spoken to, to Shelly Poole and, and Daniel Blyden. And, uh, and, and so look, I just want to yeah, shout out for these guys. Cause you know, like they're really involved in, in art and uh, this is what they do, um, professionally. And so they're, they're surrounded by these conversations all the time. And so, you know, I was like way out of the loop. I'm over here looking at postmodernism and they're like, uh, Marcus, wait a minute. Like that's old, you know, <laughs> uh, get caught up with the times metamodernism is where it's at. Um, so thank you guys for, uh, for that. Anyways, um, the key thing to remember uh, about any sort of philosophical worldview and why we look into it, uh, it's not to be fancy, guys. It's we're, I'm not doing this to be like, hey, look how smart I am. Look at how in uh, you know in, in the you know up to times I am or whatever. Um, it's because if we want to reach the culture, we we have to understand how the culture thinks, and it's not just the 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 surface sort of bland ways in which the culture thinks. We, we have to get down to sort of like the root, the heartbeat, the, the, the thing that drives them. And so in this podcast episode, as I explore metamodernism, I've also got to define postmodernism because you can't understand metamodernism without postmodernism. So hopefully uh, that's okay for those of you who are very familiar with postmodernism. I hope you don't mind. Uh, but like I said, metamodernism is not new. Um, I mean, it's newer than postmodernism, but it's kind of started around the 1970s when the, when the word was first coined. Uh, and and it's recently started claiming the attention um, of you know it's like taking the lead so to speak um, as replacing the the fading influence of postmodernity. Um, but it's probably more accurate to say that metamodernism is continuing postmodernism, not not so much replacing it as continuing it, because a lot of postmodernism remains in metamodernism with some new elements introduced. Um, now. To keep things simple, I want to focus on metamodernism's most common manifestation because like any other philosophical worldview, it can get really complicated. So I just want to focus on its most basic, um, obvious manifestation. And, and that can be best described as this non-rhythmic bouncing back and forth between two opposing ideologies, right? Now, here is where it gets interesting. And please follow me here. Because uh, this is this is where it really matters. Uh, before postmodernism, the prevailing worldview was modernism, right? There was modernism and then postmodernism. Now, the modernist naively believed that they could change the world through something like, for example, like science, right? So they naively believed that science was going to lead us toward this utopia where everything was going to be perfect and beautiful. And then we had World War One and World War Two. So there goes that. <laughs> and, and so here postmodernism emerges and it distances itself from this naivety because it failed, right? It, this promise that science was going to make this bring about this utopia, it failed. It, it, rather than bringing about a utopia, it brought about some of the most deadly conflicts that we've ever seen. Uh, so for the postmodernist, cynical Irony took the place of modernism's naive positivity. Uh, so basically, the modernist was looking at the flow of human history as progress, and it was positive, and and it was you know, it was it was nice. Whereas the postmodernist 
takes a look at the human narrative not as progress but as uh, it's not even regress i don't even know what to call it it's like a like a downgress i suppose where the future is seen not with not with enthusiasm but with cynicism and so here is where you get sort of like the dystopian view of the future if you've seen you know some of these dystopian movies like um uh oh boy what's it called um it just had a just completely slipped my mind there's a whole bunch of them but dystopian movies like uh divergent insurgent um you know all that that series and um you know these movies depict this future where we've sort of gone back to this um kind of dictator sort of you know unjust society and the world is post-apocalyptic and everything has collapsed and it's all chaos so this is the post-modernist view of the future which is totally different from the modernist view of the future that was like oh we're headed towards utopia we're headed toward a perfect society right um and the reason again why post-modernists view the future so dark is because all the promises of modernism in in their perspective it failed when world war one and world war two hit the world stage right like now the same science that we're saying is going to give us this beautiful future is the science that we're using to create the atomic bomb that could annihilate our entire world so it changes the view of the future from something enthusiastic to something cynical um but here's the thing metamodernism is emerging and here's the reason why the modernist believed that the future was bright the postmodernist believed that the future was dark cynical ironic and the problem is that you can't live your life with a cynical view of the future like it just doesn't work right you can't live with with purpose or with enthusiasm if you see the future in such dystopian colors you have to have an enthusiastic view of the future in order to live a life with meaning and purpose right you you've got to have something positive that drives you forward despite the absurdity of life you can't just paint everything with cynicism however here's where it gets weird all right here's you know just follow along here's where it gets strange the metamodernist does not believe that the future is bright so they still have the dystopianism of the postmodernist the cynicism but what they believe is that you need to take the enthusiasm and naivety of the modernist and live with that naivety and that enthusiasm despite the fact that the future is dark and so it's like yes the future is dark but we're gonna live as though it's bright now that's not a 100 accurate assessment that's sort of like a, a brief overview because metamodernists are not actually balancing postmodernism and modernism right so we think of a balancing act where you take one concept from one worldview another concept for another worldview and you hold them in equal tension with each other what the metamodernist is actually doing is they're bouncing back and forth between the two but there's no rhythm to it right it's not a balance it's an oscillation it's, it's the best way of putting it and and this is really important to recognize and again even if you're sort of sort of, sort of struggling to follow with this that's okay 
Because what we're attempting to do here is we're attempting to, to, to enter into the way that the culture is thinking. And this is the thing that's so brilliant and so necessary is that we as, as Christians, you know, we, when, we, when we proclaim the truth, when we proclaim the gospel, uh, we have to do it in ways that make sense to the culture. And so that's why it's so important to understand the culture and understand the way that they're interacting with reality. And uh, if you read the article on the Compass magazine or the appendix in the ebook, um, Metamodernism and its Impending Challenge, I give some examples there from Shia LeBeau and some of his art exhibits and stuff like that that explains this a little bit more. Um, but here's the bottom line. If we're going to focus on the most common manifestation of metamodernism, what we're really talking about is this emerging vision that embraces two equally opposing ideas at the same time like hopelessness and enthusiasm, like we hold on to both of them at the same time. But they're not balancing those two ideas like a paradox. They're, they're swaying, they're, they're, they're oscillating non-rhythmically between them with cynicism sort of remains at the core of the worldview and sincerity plays the role of escape. Now, hopefully you're not horribly <laughs> lost right now. Um, but what I want to do is I want to switch gears and I want to start looking at, okay, so what does this present to Christianity? Like what kind of challenge does metamodernism present to Christianity um, or a weight to present to Christianity? Um, because, you know, it hasn't, metamodernism hasn't fully evolved into the cultural consciousness yet. Like I said, it's, it's among the trendsetters, but most philosophical narratives, they usually, there's, there's shifts in society that the philosophers codify um these unconscious shifts in, in in society philosophers codify it and then the influencers run with it right and so the influencers are like the artists and you know the people who influence the way we think um and then when the the, the artists run with it what happens is the culture takes little bits that takes the crumbs of that and then that becomes the sort of like the driving cliche of the era or the age so we haven't gotten to that stage yet with metamodernism we're still there with the culture still primarily chewing on the crumbs of postmodernism but metamodernism's on its way and we have to sort of be familiar with 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 this so that we don't end up like we are right now where we're talking about postmodernism when it's almost over uh, and, and, you know, hopefully we don't do the same with metamodernism where we, we start visiting it and having conferences about it when it's pretty much just about done. Uh, I hope we can get in at least a little bit ahead and look, we're already behind. So, um, so here's the thing. I have to speculate a little bit about the, the challenges that metamodernism is going to pose once it hits the cultural sort of vibe. Um, but I think these assumptions are intelligent nonetheless. They're informed assumptions, so I'm, I'm comfortable with sharing them. And so what, what I think what we're going to start to see is this speculative, um, or this cultural mood, rather, in, in which a person can be both a Christian and an agnostic. So believing, on the one hand, that God is undiscoverable, while simultaneously embracing this naive sincerity that God is personal and intimate. Um, or believing that salvation is impossible while at the same time embracing this self-deluding scriptural promise of atonement and redemption. And I say self-deluding in, in quotes, right? Um, or believing, for example, in the reabsorption of consciousness into the universe, like the Eastern religions, 
while trending toward the promise of a conscious eternity, like which is what the Christians believe. And so this is probably, you know, like what you would see among the Christian Buddhist trend. This is potentially a future manifestation of that. Now, again, I'm still operating off of this seesaw, like this balancing thing, like, oh, God is personal and intimate, but God is also undiscoverable, sort of like this paradox. And remember, that's not really how metamodernism works. It's, it's, it's not that clean. It's way messier, right? Um, but here's what I envision. I envision that adherence to, to this cultural shift are going to be very difficult to reach, while at the same time appearing open to the gospel. And I think that this is something that's going to set them apart from postmodernists because postmodernists are generally not open to the gospel. Um, they're generally quite closed to it. But metamodernists, I think, are going to appear very open to the gospel. And we might even start to see a resurgence in church attendance and baptisms and membership without realizing that many of our converts supposed converts, are actually oscillating between their cynical hopelessness in the final fate of the universe and the gullibility of faith in this final restoration. And, and we're going to think we're doing a great job, but we're not. Uh, because most, like I said, of our baptisms and converts are not going to be Christians in the way in which we would think of Christianity. They're going to be oscillating. Um, so, Another way of putting that is that they won't really believe the gospel, but they'll add it to the cynical irony that they already carry. It's kind of like when you know people like Christian missionaries go to Indian countries and 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 they preach the gospel to the Hindus, and then the Hindus add Jesus to their pre-existing pantheon of gods, right? Um, so. I, I, this is what I envision beginning to take place as metamodernism sweeps across the cultures. People are going to be really open to church and really open to tradition and really open to um, liturgy and really open to, uh, you know, embracing, you know, the call to be a part of this community of faith and to follow Jesus and to live in the way of Jesus. But it's not going to be like a deep heart commitment is going to be more like, oh, I've got this cynical irony that I live with, but I need something enthusiastic to sort of wrap it up in. And so, yeah, I'll do Jesus. But it's not like real conversion, if that makes sense. Um, so here's, here's the challenge with that, is that most of our churches are primed to to go with that sort of flow, if, I, if my speculation is correct, because most of our churches don't do discipleship. And the only thing that is going to mitigate against this metamodern meta oscillation that can have people joining our church without fully believing, but just sort of, you know, bouncing back and forth with, you know, their faith in Jesus and, and, and the cynical irony of postmodernism. Uh, the only thing that can mitigate against that is discipleship, right? You can't just preach and then baptize like discipleship is is where you actually sit down with someone and you get deep into the core of their being and you teach them the way of jesus right and you and you journey with them and and you root out false ideas about god and you allow the holy spirit to bring in true ideas about god discipleship right it's it's a journey it's a lifelong commitment it's a mentorship it's a teaching it's it's you know there's so much to it and most of our churches don't do discipleship and so i think that as metamodernism sweeps across the culture in the coming decades we'd better get really serious about discipleship or else we're going to start to see an increase in church membership and baptisms etc 
thinking we're doing awesome without realizing like, oh, they're just oscillating. And so baptism is just part of the oscillation, right? Now, in this Huffington Post piece titled Metamodernism, The Basics, contributor Seth Abramson makes the following observation. Metamodernism, he says, seeks to collapse distances, especially the distance between things that seem to be opposites. So it's this collapse between distances, this sporadic dance between sincerity and irony, salvation and annihilation, dystopia and utopia, that most clearly identifies the metamodern challenge. So like from a philosophical perspective, I understand that this is a bit of an oversimplification and, and potentially even insulting. But again, I'm not so concerned with how the philosophers themselves will define metamodernism but with the crumbs that the culture is going to to chew on and and like is the case with every generation the philosophical visions that dominate the generations uh the culture always just eats the crumbs and they run with it and you get you end up with all these you know cheesy one-liners that people live their life by uh so for example with postmodernism, we'll, we'll hear these cheesy one-liners like oh there's no such thing as truth well if you if you talk to a postmodern philosopher they'll tell you that that's an insulting oversimplification of postmodern philosophy but the culture doesn't care about that right like the culture is just running with the crumbs and so that's what i'm really interested in is what are the crumbs of metamodernism that the culture is going to pick up on and run with and, and it's this collapse between distances that I think is going to be the number one thing that we'll see that will we'll give the facade of revival in our churches um, unless we've got real good discipleship pathways that people can journey through. Um, so what exactly, like if I was to conclude this whole metamodernist thing, um, how exactly would I conclude it? And, and I, I honestly, I, I kind of have to go to Karl Marx here. Not that I like Karl Marx. I, I kind of don't. <laughs> um, but he made a really interesting observation, um, you know, during his time. It's a, it's a famous quote of his where he looked at religion and he says, you know, this religion, he, 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 he said, is, it's the opium of the people. And, and what Marx was actually saying there is that religion often blinds people to the real changes needed around them. It promises this escape from reality, uh, from, from the reality that they should be invested in reforming. And so rather than invest in the reality, people will say, oh, Jesus is coming soon. So the only thing that matters is heaven. Just forget this reality. Forget that the planet is being destroyed, you know, by chemicals and you know jesus is coming and is going to get wiped out anyways forget that racism is still plaguing our societies jesus is coming and that's all going to be done away with and so for marx like this is just escapism it's this pie in the sky mentality where you escape the responsibility of fixing what's wrong with society by just constantly appealing to this future utopia and for for marx this is why he said look religion is this opium that people take to to escape the problems of the present day. Um, and so for according to Marx, uh, the real despair in society is something that needs to be addressed, but it goes ignored because of the religious cloak that conceals it. And I completely disagree with, you know, the way Marx and his disciples in the coming um, eras attempted to address that. But that's not really my point here. I'm not really here to talk about Marx. The, the point that I'm making is that metamodernism for me appears to be like it's like this cloak, this religious cloak is going to be reintroduced, but in a different way. So that 
the practitioner, right, the religious practitioner's experience in the divine is really just an opiate that they purposefully consume to avoid the cynicism of postmodernity that they still believe but refuse to fully concede. So by oscillating back and forth between irony and sincerity, this, the metamodern kind of maintains his ironic core but admits that it's unlivable. And because it's unlivable, then he embraces the naive optimism of the modernist. Um, and again, it's like an opium, right? It's like, oh, I believe that we're headed toward dystopia, but that's a terrible way to live. So I'm just going to take this opium, <laughs> which, you know, religion or, or the naive sincerity of the modernist, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live like that, even though I really, truly don't fully believe that that's reality, right? Um, so this definitely poses a challenge um, that I believe discipleship is is the only thing that can really fully address. And so I, I really want to challenge our churches to be really intentional about developing discipleship pathways, right? We shouldn't be focusing on how many people we baptize. We need to be focusing on discipling people, right? And discipleship is way bigger than just than baptism. Um, so like in postmodernism, this this metamodernist challenge is not just a challenge it also brings these brilliant opportunities for dialogue and cultural transformation and for me that's the beautiful thing like we we i don't believe we should look at the culture as a problem because once you see, look at the culture as a problem then people become projects instead of people um so you know postmodernism was an opportunity and i think metamodernism is an opportunity too for us to engage in in the in-between right in in the bouncing back and forth between this irony and sincerity um, and and opening the heart with people and and journeying with people and and it opens their hearts to the possibility of redemption and, and restoration that was mocked in postmodernism, which is a cool thing because, you know, in postmodernism in the, in a truly postmodern you know neighborhood or, or or region, if you go in there preaching you know the hope as it is in Jesus, people just look at you like you're an idiot because it's like they all have this dystopian view. They think hope is cheesy and ridiculous, right? Um, Whereas metamodernism says, no, hold on, hope is okay, right? Like we don't have to treat hope like it's some cheesy, you know, imaginative thing. It's it's okay to have hope, and it's it's okay to embrace it, even though they don't fully believe it. Um, so I do think that metamodernism presents that opportunity where the message of hope and enthusiasm once again becomes something that is. Um, is not intellectual suicide like it was in postmodernism, where sort of any appeal to to positivity and 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 hope was looked at as you know cheesy, unintelligent, etc. So, um, so yeah, there's some negative slants on uh, you know with metamodernism, and but there's some positive ones as well, and I think that that's really, really, really cool, and I really want to encourage all of us to invest in understanding this worldview, to invest in understanding the, the way people think and, and, and how these things are developing so that we can be ahead of the game when these changes actually take place. Uh, we, we won't be, you know, a hundred years behind the times like we were with postmodernism. Now, why is this important? And I want to wrap it up with this. Um, it's important because... Like I said, Adventism started exploring the impact of postmodernism when postmodernism was already beginning to fade. So, like, the truth is most of our discussions on the topic started in the, in the current century, despite the fact that, like I said earlier, postmodernism emerged right after World War II, and it was in full swing by the 1950s. 
And we now discuss postmodernism in in detail, but it's not the central way of seeing reality anymore. Um, and so the millennial infatuation, for example, with social justice, it's not really compatible with postmodernism. Because in social justice, what are you doing? You're fighting for a more just society. You're trending toward utopia. Whereas postmodernism doesn't have utopia, it has dystopia. And so the millennial infatuation with social justice and the post-millennial infatuation with social justice makes it very clear that postmodernism, it can't hang on because social justice and postmodernism, they kind of go together in, in the value structure, but in the metaphysics, you know, they, they, they don't because, not metaphysics so much as meta worldview, they don't because, you know, on the one hand, like you're pushing for you know, a future where there's, you know, there's, there's, there's justice and equity for everyone, regardless of race or gender or orientation. Um, and then you have this worldview that says, yeah, we're headed nowhere and we're headed to this terrible future. Um, so that's one example, political activism, humanitarian ethos. Uh, these are phenomenons that fit more consistently with metamodernism and its re-embrace of modernism's utopian potential than with postmodernism and its impulse toward a dystopian vision of urban poverty and the future of society. And so it's clear that the shift is, it already started taking place. Like I said, you know, these shifts usually, there's these shifts in society that happen first, um, and then the, the philosophers codify it, and then the, you know, the influencers begin to disseminate it, and then the culture takes the crumbs. Um, now, other examples are the rising popularity of the occult, you know, new age wisdom, uh, this return to the way of the ancients, uh, hashtag not my president with his morally absolute critique of Donald Trump does not match postmodernism at all. Like there's no moral absolutes in postmodernism. And all of a sudden, this is morally absolute critique of the president, you know, um, from younger generations. Um, the nearly overnight stardom of the Messiah like Jordan Peterson, right? Um, this also hints at the death of postmodernism and the arrival of this new ethos because, you know, what is Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson is fundamentally a, a, an existentialist and uh, he believes in absolutes and, and not only absolutes, he believes in boundaries and he believes in, you know, uh, the, 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 the function of society and hierarchies. All of these things were incompatible with postmodernism. And, and yet, you know, despite the fact that most liberals can't stand Jordan Peterson, the, the fact remains that the dude is mad famous, like a lot of people listening to the guy. And that shows you that there's a shift somewhere in the culture and the way people are thinking. Um, so yeah, metamodernism, like it's already happening around this. And, and I, I believe it's, it's going to emerge soon as the dominant ideological construct for society at large. And my question is, will Adventism respond decades late once more? Will we maintain our reactionary posture toward cultural change or will we be proactively prepared to influence the culture instead? Now, there's also a slightly more complex reason why understanding and influencing the metamodern conversation is so important. I want to quote political sociologist Brent Cooper here where he says this, there can be nothing beyond metamodernism because it implies building permanent peace based on conciliating between past, present, and future. 
there you can um, you can you can get a taste of the return to the naivety and the enthusiasm of the future, right? This permanent peace that we're building, we're conciliating between past, present, and future. But the key that I want to highlight is that according to this political sociologist, there can't be anything beyond metamodernism. It's 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 like metamodernism is this totalizing ideology in the best sense possible. And so we may very well be looking at a philosophical construct to which there is no after, right? No beyond. And so in short, what this means is that our evangelistic mission will increasingly have to adjust to this systemic entropy and cultural fragmentation that metamodernism seeks to resolve. And and when metamodernism fails, because it will, it will fail. As the fall of Babylon predicts in the book of Revelation, humanity will be left with no philosophical alternative to turn to. If, if you know, Brent Cooper is accurate, if he's right, right? Everything will have been tried and tested to no avail. And when the dust settles, what will be left for people to hang on to? And I think what will be left for people to hang on to are two things. Either Christ will be what's left for you or anarchy will be what's left for you. And I think that the book of Revelation shows that there's this tension at the end of time between the people driven by the impulse of love centered in Christ and, 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 a, and a society driven by the impulse of self on, on the borders of anarchy um, at war with God. And I think that's where we're headed, right? Now, of course, we're free to disagree with this observation. Like, I'm not making any prophetic interpretations here. Uh, maybe metamodernism is not the end of man's ideological road, but I do agree with something else Cooper said nonetheless. Even if we disagree with that bit, I do agree with this. Cooper states, and I quote, one way or another, metamodernism will come to define the 21st century, end quote. So we as a church, we can't afford to ignore it. And because it's only now emerging into the academic consciousness, we're poised to be on the front end of its development and not the tail. So in conclusion, because I got to wrap this up, guys, um, look, postmodernism is dead. That's the bottom line. In the philosophical and artistic worlds, postmodernism is a fading ideology. And metamodernism, while not the only emerging alternative, there are others, um, it definitely appears to be taking the lead. And in due time, there's going to be a diluted version of this complex system of thought that's going to trickle down to the culture and emerge in a series of platitudes, cliches, and banal axioms that will fuel a whole new approach to faith as an intentionally incongruent refuge from an a priori embrace of approaching despair. And um, that's a really fancy way of saying you're covering your cynicism with the robe of Christian hope, even though you don't really fully embrace that hope. So Christians are going to have to work hard to both understand the nuances of this phenomenon as it unfolds and simultaneously present the culture and authentic Christianity that works in the lives of believers by actually providing not just some theological legal code that gets you an access card to heaven, but really, really results in authentic, reliable transformation, a metamorphosis of being. Uh, and I believe that if they see that reality unfold, that they'll be more open to the possibility that universal redemption is true and, and a promise that's worth believing without oscillation. And, uh, and I really hope that as a local Adventist church and as a global Adventist movement, particularly in the West, that we, we're poised to, to meet that need with discipleship 
and uh, with real meaningful, authentic faith, expressions of faith. So, all right, guys, I am going to wrap this up uh, because I've talked a lot. I'm looking at about 42 minutes right now. If you have any questions about metamodernism, please feel free to email me. I'm not an absolute expert on the topic. I'm just another guy trying to understand the culture and interact meaningfully with it. So I just want to encourage you, you know, feel free to shoot me an email. Feel free to drop a comment. Um, share your thoughts, share your ideas. Make sure you get your hands on the book, How to Study the Bible with Postmoderns. You can get the appendix with some more email. I'm sorry, more email, listen to me, with some more info um, in the uh, in, in the book. Uh, and also check out the Compass Magazine where the article is published, Metamodernism and its impending challenge. All right, guys, thank you so much for hanging out again at the Story Church Project. I'll catch you guys next week. Until then, I would encourage you to continue to redesign your local Adventist church. God bless.